0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tragedy and Hope, The Biggest Story in the World, Extra Environmentalist, Prescription Nature, redacted tonight with Lee Camp, and The Center for a New American Dream.
1: what makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like? Let's suppose I do this often in vocational guidance of students. They come to me and say, well, uh, we're getting out of college and we have not the faintest idea what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really enjoy spending your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers, but as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I said, do you want to teach in a riding school? Uh, Let's go through with it. What do you want to do? Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing, than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is. You can eventually turn it. Uh, you could eventually become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something is be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. So well, don't, don't worry too much, uh, That's uh, everybody's. Uh, somebody's interested in everything, and anything you can be interested in you'll find others who want. But it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like, in order to go on spending things you don't like, and doing things you don't like, and to teach your children to follow in the same track. See what we're doing, is we're bringing up children and educating them to live the same sort of lives we're living in order that they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life by bringing up their children, to bring up their children, to do the same thing. So it's all wretch and no vomit. It never gets there. And so, therefore, it's so important to consider this question. What do I
2: desire? Th- consensus economically in recent decades, the sort of neoliberal consensus, has been that we have to have growth, we have to have unfettered markets, uh, and that we deregulate to uh, allow that to happen. Uh, the global economy has actually grown almost five times uh, over half a century ago. Um, And if you want to do something about climate change, you have to bust this myth that the only way for economics is relentless growth.
3: So, um, let's start with something nice and easy. Uh, If you could say who you are and uh, what you do.
2: This, this, uh, the guy who's really wonderful and eloquent is Tim Jackson. I suggested I sent the paper to Alan because he's the real intellectual underpinning of it. But he also is—he's a beautiful writer and philosopher, so he's able to articulate it really well.
4: My name is um, Tim Jackson, and I'm Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey. I have a, at the moment, I have an ESRC Research Fellowship here, Professorial Research Fellowship on Prosperity and Sustainability. Let's start with, you know, what the economic system is supposed to do. And ultimately, I think, that, you know, there's, there's at least a reasonable supposition that the economic system is supposed to deliver prosperity. Now, to some people, those two things are the same. You know, the, 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 the rise in, in economic output is the same as the rise in prosperity. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the assumptions on, what, on which the existing system sits. At
2: the moment all success is, is measured in this GDP growth and the minute there's a blip in growth p- politicians panic and it's a disaster and we have all the sort of efforts focused on on stimulus to restore growth and and the idea that growth economically in- depends on more and more people consuming more and more and more and you can't do that we've reached the planetary buffers there aren't enough resources left. So we have to rethink that. We have to come up with a new form of economics.
4: Prosperity in its original meaning is, is, about, is about doing well. It's about living in accordance with our hopes and our expectations. It is to some extent about hope, and so it's kind of ironic in a way that the existing system in trying to deliver prosperity is undermining hope by, by undermining the conditions on, on which our future prosperity actually depends. So so there's a fundamental distinction there if, if if it's about prosperity if it's about doing well then it's the next question is what are the conditions of doing well and the conditions of doing well of course to some extent are about nutrition and they're about housing and about shelter and about security that's undeniable but beyond those material conditions which actually largely were met in m- the developed world, and in particular in the UK, in the more or less in the post-war period, beyond that fulfilling of material conditions, actually prosperity is about different things. It's about our friendships, it's about our family, it's about our sense of community, it's about our health. It's a number of tasks which are partly social and sociable in character. Then there is a the question of how to build the economy, which makes that possible. And in that task, I would start from basics. I wouldn't start from saying, um, you know, we have to have uh, neoliberal free markets in which this form of financial capitalism is exactly as we've seen it in the last 20 years because we know that that actually isn't delivering that kind of prosperity. It's not delivering it in a socially equitable way and it's doing it in a way which is destroying the environment.
5: Someone who has written up what an economic solution could be that doesn't embrace the neoliberal consensus is Canadian author, social activist and filmmaker Naomi Klein.
6: So um, if it's a little under an hour, it'll help me a lot to get to my appointment on time. We'll be far less
5: than that,
2: Naomi. Okay, let's go.
5: Naomi Klein published a book earlier this year called This Changes Everything, which suggests that to solve climate change, we need a radical new politics and a radical new economics.
6: Yeah. So the argument in the book is that it's not too late to prevent catastrophic warming. the road we're on will change everything about our physical world. We can get off it, but we've waited so long that getting off it requires changing pretty much everything about our political and economic system. Um, And... and by that I mean, we live in this age of deregulation and austerity and low taxes for the rich. Um, If we take climate change seriously, we need massive investments in the public sphere. We need to reverse many core privatizations of energy systems and transit. Um, And the good news is this will create a better and fairer economy. It will create millions of jobs. It will create fairer energy systems where the wealth stays in communities, where people have control. over over their energy systems um, and it'll close the gap between rich and poor within our countries and between our countries the Guardian's editor
5: Alan Rusbridger has read the book heard the arguments
1: one of the criticisms of your book which you must be familiar with Naomi is that actually you just don't much like capitalism how do you respond to that criticism
6: well, I don't really understand it as a criticism, unless the implication is, is that I'm manufacturing my concern about climate change, right, because it supports the thesis, and that's simply not true. Um, I do have a critique of capitalism and overconsumption that I would have whether or not it was causing the climate to warm. But I, I, you know, I see these issues as, as, as intimately connected. I mean, we know that an economic system that acts as if resources are finite will deplete those resources. And one of the you know one of the impacts of that of that same system is that it acts as if our pollution sinks are infinite as well and that's what's happening with the atmosphere but climate change i think deserves to be seen as part of a broader ecological crisis of depleting those pollution sinks and depleting finite resources and you know it also has extremely damaging social impacts as well
1: so it's not it, it's simplistic to say this is that you want to get rid of capitalism
6: well i think it's simplistic to say say that I want to get rid of markets, the argument I make in the book is, you know, it's, it's, it's not about doing away with private property, no, but would you call a, an economic system that is as deliberate as the one I'm describing, where we make these kinds of choices, where we expand the public sector quite dramatically? where we put very real restrictions on markets, you know, it would be a much more mixed economy than we have right now. Uh, And I think that the challenge this poses to the growth imperative makes it a challenge to the fundamental propulsion of capitalism. Frankly, I don't, I'm not too hung up on whether or not at the end of that, that is called capitalism or not. I'm very clear in the book that that industrial socialism was just as bad for the climate as capitalism. But we are talking about a massive economic shift.
7: Degrowth, in my mind, it has to do with the physical size of the economy. I don't really care what happens to GDP. I think it's a largely irrelevant measure. I actually think it's a measure of costs. So, in my view, degrowth is it's measured in GDP is reducing the cost. But re- degrowth really is is bringing our economy into this um, constraints of our global ecosystem. And again, it's that we. We cannot extract natural resources faster than they regenerate. We can't spew waste in the environment faster than it's absorbed. We can't deplete uh, essential non-renewables faster than we develop new substitutes. And we have to maintain the resilience and structure of our ecosystems so they can cont- continue to pr- provide critical ecosystem services. I mean, it's a simple law of physics that you can't make something from nothing, and the things we produce in our economy require the transformation of resources provided by nature. There's a finite amount of resources. We live on a finite planet. But more compelling is the fact that those resources we transform into economic products alternatively serve as the structural building blocks of ecosystems. When we transform the trees and the fish and the water and the minerals into things we use, we degrade or destroy the capacity of ecosystems to provide vital life-sustaining services. We also need energy to do work, and the energy we use is fossil fuels. And when we burn those fossil fuels, we create all, form- all sorts of pollution. Um, So a recent economic study looked at coal-fired power plants and only looked at their impacts on human health and found that the cost of dealing with the health impacts exceeded the profits from the coal-fired power plants. So what we see, there's this idea in in, uh, real economic growth is when an increase in an activity generates more benefits than it generates in costs. We've reached that point where it seems that increasing the physical size of our economy generates more costs in the form of ecological degradation, in the form of extra work hours, in the form of time away from family and friends, that the costs of generating that growth exceed the benefits we get from it. A bigger flat screen TV, another car, you know, more cheap plastic crap. And so the fact is that there is a point where more consumption absolutely makes you better off. And countries that aren't meeting their basic human needs, they do need more growth. Although often what's more important than more growth is greater equity. So there's more billionaires in China right now than there are billionaires in Europe. And a more equitable distribution would really help out. And it's actually very interesting that equity seems to be a fundamental, you know, fairness and justice are uh Fundamental to human well being. And epidemiologists in Europe have done this study uh, to show social and health problems correlated to income distribution. And rich countries with high levels of inequality have high levels of health problems and social ills. And much less wealthy countries with high levels of equality have much better social and health outcomes. And this includes homicide rates, obesity, teen pregnancies, infant mortality, life expectancy. So, um, so I think rather than focusing on growth, we need to be focusing much more on equity. And the fact is that um, in the short run, we can consume a lot, and it depletes the capacity of our planet to sustain growth in the future. We burn up the oil today. It's not there in the future. We chop down our forests today. We don't have them in the future. We out- overfish our Oceanic fish stocks—it's gone in the future. So we're sacrificing um, sustainability for current consumption. It often makes us worse off. But what I would say: there's a couple ways to look at this. First of all, I do think people are entitled to the efforts of their own labor. If I work really, really hard and I produce things, I'm entitled to some gain from that. But I'm not entitled to any particularly any per, um, particular share of the wealth created by nature. So, if, um, for example, I would argue that resources created by nature or society as a whole belong to all of us equally. So I am not entitled to use more than my fair share of the planet's capacity to absorb carbon dioxide. And if I want to use more than my share, I should compensate the rest of the society for doing that. And if I want to extract more than my share of oil or chop down more than my share of the regenerative capacity of our forests, I should compensate the rest of society for doing that because that was not created by my sweat, my labor. So I think we all have a basic right to an equal amount of the renewable productive capacity of our ecosystems. We also have the right to what we create with our own labor. But human societies have always very much valued equity. And if you look at traditional hunter-gatherer societies, any individuals who tried to accumulate more than their share were ostracized, kicked out of society, which in those days was a death sentence. And nowadays they're put up on pedestals. Well, people are capable of acting cooperatively or acting selfishly. And we can create economic institutions that favor selfish people acting cooperatively or other institutions that favor cooperative people acting selfishly. And this has been, you know, Eleanor Ostrom, Nobel. Well Prize for this in 2005 for um, you know explaining describing some of these institutions, but I would argue that the market is a superb institution for making cooperative people act selfishly. The issue is, and here it's interesting that there's agreement now among anthropologists, mathematical biologists, evolutionists, uh, uh, behavioral economists, that certain types of problems can only be solved cooperatively. And these problems have specific types of characteristics. These are the most serious problems we now face. And we need to create the economic institutions that lead people to act cooperatively. And one profound element of acting cooperatively is equity. You, if some people amass more than what seems fair that, is, that undermines the capacity of a uh, community to act cooperatively. Looking at the GDP question, I actually think GDP is a fairly appropriate measure of costs, not benefits. And that seems to be a radical claim. Costs often are associated with benefits. You pay more for a bicycle, you probably get a better bicycle. You pay more for a house, you probably get a better house. But it's not always that case. And to make that case, here in Canada, you spend about 9% of your GDP on health care. In the United States, we spend about 17%. So if we're looking at GDP as a measure, our health care system is vastly superior to yours because it, we create more, far more GDP through our health care system. However, our life expectancy is less than yours. Our infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates are higher than yours. Our obesity levels are higher than yours. In fact, on almost every major indicator of health, the United States falls far behind Canada. If I tell somebody we have a better healthcare system because we spend more than you, um, you know, it's, well that's crazy. In fact, the way you evaluate the quality of a healthcare system are those health indicators. If the United States and the U.S. had similar levels of health indicators. How would you compare the quality of our systems? The cheapest system would be the better system. You would divide your quality of life measured in years of healthy life, for example, for a healthcare system, by the costs. The costs belong in the denominator. When we strive to maximize GDP, we are striving to maximize costs, which is patently insane. Another example, 2007, the price of wheat tripled due to a decrease in output. Measured by GDP, we had a little bit less wheat. Measured by three times the price. And that shows up as the contribution of, of wheat to our welfare increased. Actually, it decreased because there was less of it. Same with fossil fuel prices, going, increasing by 350% from 2005 to 2008. That shows up as the contribution of oil to our welfare increasing when in reality... The oil quantity stayed the same, so there was no change. So think of GDP as a measure of costs. All of these things suddenly make perfect sense. So I would say that um, you know this idea about degrowth measured at GDP: it's how do we reduce our costs? Everybody thinks it makes sense to reduce costs. Where are we doing this? It's hard to say. Um, uh, you know, in my own house right now, I've just massively invested in insulation. I expect the rate of return of my investment to be about 10% per year. And that means that every year I will spend less on energy than I did before. And, in fact, I'll spend enough less that I can pay off the interest on my loan to do this investment. This shrinks GDP. So this is GDP goes down because I'm spending less on oil. My benefits go up. My house is now far more comfortable, requires far less heat. So the services provided by my house have gone up. The contribution of my house to GDP has gone down. That's a degrowth and improvement in quality of life. We could do this on a national scale. In fact, uh, a lot of studies show that um, it's a a cost-saving way of decreasing our carbon footprint, reducing our imports of fossil fuels from unstable countries, but it will decrease our GDP. If our goal is GDP, we should tear out the insulation, replace all our windows with really crappy, you know, low-value things, you know, leave our doors and windows open. That's wonderful for GDP, terrible for quality of life. So um, I think that's a simple example of where degrowth can really make us better. We know in 1969 in the United States, we consumed half as much per capita as we do today. And people's self-reported assessments of happiness and satisfaction with the life as a whole were higher. So we know a degrowth of 50%. There's no reason. We have empirical evidence to show that would not make us worse off in any way. And I think there's abundant empirical evidence that shows we'd be much better off with um, with some serious levels of degrowth and the profound levels of degrowth required to achieve ecological sustainability may cause hardship but i also think the deep sense of fulfillment and well-being comes from working cooperatively to overcome and address those hardships and i you know so i think it's a i think it's a rosy picture of a future compared to our current trend which is uh, pretty scary
8: Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature.
2: From
0: the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life.
8: Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too.
0: Nature can reduce
9: cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia.
0: Caution.
8: Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're
9: doing with your life.
3: If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you
0: may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason.
8: So ask your doctor if nature is right for you.
10: The world are dominated by cars. Priority in urban planning is mostly given to streets for cars. Yet, considering climate change, environmental pollution, and global resource depletion, this cannot and will not be the future of urban design, urban transport and urban life. It's time to imagine cities with fewer cars. What can be done to help urban planners and decision makers imagine a car-free city? How can images of eco-mobile street life be created? The first Eco-Mobility World Festival was organized to offer a glimpse into the city of the future.
11: During the Eco-Mobility World Festival, there will be one neighborhood in a city in the world. In this case, in this year, the city of Suwon in South Korea where the entire neighborhood will be car-free for one month, where the citizens will adopt an eco-mobile lifestyle, where they will walk, cycle, or take public transport to go to work, to go shopping, to go to the doctor, and they'll experience how a car-free life will feel and will will turn out to be
10: for them. Conrad Otto Zimmerman, creative director of the Eco-Mobility World Festival, came up with the idea of a mise-en-scene. One neighbourhood, one month, no cars. To make the experiment enjoyable, it was developed as a festival. Together with ICLEI, the global network of green cities, and United Nations Habitat, he was looking for a city ready to take up the challenge. In the year 2011, at the Eco-Mobility Congress in Changwon City, they were about to issue a call to find the host for the first Ecomobility World Festival.
1: To accelerate our efforts to turn automobile cities into eco-mobile cities, UN Habitat and ICLEI are joining forces to look for a pilot city.
10: At that moment, one city leader took up the idea, Mayor Tai Young Yom, from Suwon in South Korea. After reviewing opportunities and risks of the project, the city decided to host the Eco-Mobility World Festival in its Hanggung-dong neighborhood. Hanggung-dong is home to 4,300 people and about 1,500 cars. It's the historic town center where the old palace is situated. But in the last decades, Hanggung-dong had become an underdeveloped area. During several workshops, experts from Suan City, ICLEI and UN Habitat planned the ambitious festival in all details. It took us around 18 months to do the whole
11: planning and the, uh, the implementation phase uh, because there were numerous uh, public consultations uh, with the residents in the neighbourhood.
10: The political leaders of Suon took the challenge seriously. They set up a growing team of, at the end, 35 city officials and civil society representatives who were working full-time to make the festival happen. One of the city's priorities was to involve the residents to gain their commitment and support. The aim was not to force citizens to live car-free for a month but to motivate them to move their cars out of the festival area voluntarily. A neighborhood office was opened, an opinion survey of all households undertaken, meetings with residents held, and the Hangungdong Residence Group dedicated its work to the success of the festival. <laughs> In order to make residents confident that the city saw the festival not only as a one-off event, but as the start of urban rehabilitation, the city of Suwon decided to prepare not only the people, but also the streets for an eco-mobile lifestyle. Roads were reconstructed, power poles torn down, and trees planted. A group of youth reporters observed the preparations and published special eco-mobility news for the neighborhood. Three festival ambassadors were appointed to promote the festival in Korea and worldwide. Airline magazines announced the festival as the event to visit. However, the festival was not welcomed by everyone. It also caused strong protests by some residents and especially shopkeepers, who couldn't imagine that walkable streets would actually benefit their business. It was not so much the idea of the festival itself, but the road construction work was noise, dust and limited access to the shops. 8,000 kilometres away from Suwon, another group was working hard for the festival. At Iclay's World Secretariat in Bonn in Germany, a team of eight experts was leading the international preparations, organising an Eco-Mobility Congress to bring experts from all over the world to Suwon, and building a network of partner organisations excited about the unique experiment. So
11: looking where we are in June here with the external partners, I know we have one quite a, a number of partners who support the festival. What's, what's the current status?
12: Yeah, The current status is that we have uh, 12 conference uh, endorsing partners. Um, actually, this has been increasing a lot the last few weeks,
2: months. Um, so that's very good news.
11: This ICLE team has, of course, been extremely busy in Bonn, preparing day and night, uh, particularly in the last weeks. So now that they moved in here and are actually sitting really in the same building as the colleagues from Suwon that have been preparing the festival since last year, um, the cooperation is very uh, intensive but everybody is extremely busy, literally around the clock, to to do the last minute fixes.
10: After two years of preparatory work, planning, debates, road construction, media work and car-free days to prepare people's minds, the Hangong dong neighborhood was ready to launch the first Eco-mobility World Festival.
11: Eco-mobility, as we at ICLEI understand it, is um, reversing the paradigm of uh, transport planning and giving the um, environmentally friendly modes of transport priority this means start with walking what you can't walk you would cycle where you can't take the bicycle you may take any other sort of non-motorized vehicle any push or pull cart or anything that may help and when this doesn't help
10: you can take public transport for residents business owners and visitors the experience of living an eco-mobile lifestyle is very new During the first days, they don't just experience an eco-friendly environment, but also changes in their social life and business.
0: The neighborhood became brighter and the sidewalks were renovated. Now there are more street lamps and flower gardens have been created. Since then, the residents feel the improvement in the area. Now we even know more about our neighbors. These are the benefits that we've received from the festival we opened this business two months ago at the beginning we didn't have much revenue but since the festival there are many visitors walking on the streets our income has doubled or even tripled the festival is successful and our business as well
10: to make eco-mobile life possible and especially to ensure the closure of Janjo-ro the main street crossing the neighborhood The city of Suwon enforced strict traffic regulations. They entrusted the Best Drivers Association to keep the neighbourhood car-free. Not only the residents enjoyed the festival as a unique experience of living an eco-mobile lifestyle. Experts and practitioners in urban planning from all over the world came to Suwon for the Eco-Mobility World Congress to discuss opportunities and challenges of urban mobility planning. IclaE's Korea office welcomed over 300 international experts who summarized their insights and recommendations in a document called Suwon Impulse.
8: Most of the congresses are usually lectures in rooms, very nice pictures and very nice presentations but not really demonstrating how it works and here at this congress you have a mixture of theory and also practice so that you can actually really have a hands-on approach to experience what does eco-mobility mean.
10: International and local visitors could not only walk through the neighbourhood, but could actually rent and test new and extraordinary vehicles. Four parades were organised to demonstrate the new way of moving in the city and the innovative non-motorised and small electric vehicles.
12: So basically we are presenting the uh, very unique eco vehicles, which have been recruited from uh, over um, 20
5: different international companies from ten different countries actually. Um, We want to give the people a chance to to see the variety of different eco-mobile vehicles, to try them
10: out. No cars means lots of empty street space. Residents, local business people and cultural groups seized the streets not only for walking or cycling around or selling food, but tents and stages were set up for all kinds of cultural performances from traditional Korean food experience to concerts to street theatre. As the concept of eco-mobility was staged in Suwon for the first time, many experts were engaged to document people's experiences during the festival. The research team collected opinions and statements from residents and visitors. The film crew and photographers worked to show the Eco-mobility festival to the world. The Eco-Mobility World Festival changed Suwon City, the face of the streets and the minds of the people. Even before the festival ended, residents and city officials were discussing the legacy of the festival. Although the city drove the festival project and the citizens followed, it was the wish of the mayor that now the residents would determine what future they want to see, and the city administration would support their ideas. And indeed, only six weeks after the festival had ended, a resident's assembly decided in favour of a general speed limit of 20 kilometres per hour in the entire neighbourhood. Parking restrictions in the main streets and car-free streets every weekend. At the same time, encouraged by the Suwon experience, Conrad Otto Zimmerman, together with ICLE, is already planning to organise an Eco-Mobility World Festival every year in a different city, in a different country. I could not imagine that
11: so many people would contribute. So the whole neighborhood came to a different type of life. It was alive. And I was just amazed how much the city of Souvan and all the actors there, all the, had organized during this one month. This was absolutely amazing. So for me the learning is it's possible. It's possible to mobilize so much attention, so much activity around a one month the project.
3: Naomi Klein is raising some eyebrows by putting forward the idea that the only way to save humanity from our light sauteing of the world is by changing to a three-day work week. But, Miss Klein, if we only work three days a week, how will I earn enough money to have my eyebrows threaded so that they look good enough for me to raise them at your preposterous ideas, huh? (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't thread my eyebrows. These are painted on by a team of elves. And by elves, I mean child laborers who don't like to be called elves. (laughs) But actually, Naomi Klein has a great point. We work so much so that the economy can continue growing Right? But growth equals consumption, and consumption equals extraction of all the natural resources. If we were only working three days a week, this planet would have a better shot at sustaining us. Less traffic, fewer horrible bills by Congress, fewer books by Bill O'Reilly, you know, fewer Kevin James films. What is not to love? Look, folks, we're a virus, and the less time we spend doing our virusy things, the better off nature will be. So everybody, just chill the f*** out. You, know, we, you don't think we can sell this campaign, take a vacation to save the planet? That sells itself, all right? It, or another way to go would be to simply not feel global warming. Ember Labs has developed a wristband device that delivers pulses of different temperatures, stimulating your body's thermoreceptors. When I first read thermoreceptors, I, uh, I thought they meant thermometer receptors and I figured they meant the butt.
4: And I was like, that
3: device isn't going to fit in there. But no, turns out it's something else. And this device makes it so that you can feel cool even when it's hot out. So screw you, climate change. We're, we're going to feel comfortable until we're dead. Fine until dead. It's the new motto of the human race. It's, it's the new no sleep till Brooklyn.
9: If you look at the polls, the polls indicate that something like 80% or more of Americans would gladly uh, work less and have more time with their to do other things. Americans are overworked. When I grew up as a boy in the 1950s, we used to read Popular Mechanics and magazines like this, and they would tell us about the year 2000, little robots would be running all over the, the house doing things, you know, and you'd just get into a vehicle and it would fly you to work and you would, wouldn't have to drive. And, and the whole question back in the 1950s is, was, what, what are we going to do with our leisure time? But it hasn't turned out that way. When I look through my house, I've got all those things that were in those articles. You know, I've got a microwave oven. I've got computers all over the place, television sets, TV recorders. I've, you know, uh, I've got uh, recorders on my, te- my phone. All that technology is there. But I'm busier now because those technologies demand, demand that I respond to them right away. I get emails and people phone me two hours later and say, Did you get my email? You know, as if, well, why the hell haven't you answered me two hours later? So I think we've got caught up in a rat race where we think we've got to work longer and harder to make more money to get more stuff. And most Americans, I think, if they thought about it, would say, yeah, you know, this is kind of nuts. I don't really enjoy this. I think I'd rather have more time. Unfortunately, the real cost is going to be to the economy. You have an economy that 70%... uh, based on, on consumption. Now, you can see the consequence of that in any large grocery store. Go into a supermarket and look at the breakfast cereals. Hundreds of breakfast cereals, right? Man, they come in every color and shape and size and uh, fruit loops. and uh, But none of them has a proper nutritional diet. That's what you get in this economy based on consumption. Variety of every type. But it's got nothing to do with basic needs of good nutrition to feed you. And that's throughout throughout society, and we're going to have to give that up. That means jobs. That means a new kind of economy. Uh, changes are going to be huge, and a lot of people won't give that up.
8: There's so many different disconnects that humanity has with each other. You know, if I was an alien or we have an alien that comes down out of space and says, Humans, why do you exploit the planet the way that you do? Why do you war against one another? Why do you do the things that you do that just just seem to destroy yourself and committing suicide as a species in so many different ways? How do you explain to someone like that, coming from a background that has no idea what humanity
9: is like? That is a very, very perceptive and important question. Indeed, an alien coming from outer space looking at us the way I study fruit flies, right? I spent 35 years studying fruit flies. I don't say to the fruit fly, hey, what have you written? What do you think about this? Well, I just breed them, put them in a jar, they breed and they do, you know. But with humans, you say, well, what do you think? You know, and then the minute they start using words, you get all, it gets all complicated. If you were an alien looking at our species, you'd, you'd conclude, well, there's some sign of intelligence there, but they're bent on a suicidal path. And I believe the challenge we face is, throughout human history, we always knew that we were deeply embedded in the natural world and dependent on it. And we understood that if we did something, it had consequences. But now we've shattered the world. So if you look at a newspaper any day, you may see a report on floods in Bangladesh, Uh, uh, a drought in, in Africa, forest fires in Australia, and they're all reported as if they've got nothing to do with each other. So that we shatter the world and we fail to see the interconnectivity of everything. And so I I tried to say in my speech, we buy all kinds of stuff, and we think somehow, I worked hard for this money, with that money, I, I have the right to buy anything I want, without considering the ecological, social, and economic implications of pulling money out of my wallet and buying something. So we live in a shattered world in which there are no repercussions or consequences. And we've got to put the world back together again and see that it is... Tightly interconnected and in that world where everything is interconnected human beings have become a very very powerful species We are undermining the things that keep us alive But you know in the rich countries we can live with the illusion everything's fine even though We live in Canada in a vast country. In the United States, in a vast country, if we were cut off from the rest of the world, we would never be able to survive because we're using other people's land to grow our tomatoes, our oranges, or or whatever. We're using other people's land to grow our wool, to grow our cotton, and then we act as if, well, you know, we've got an economy here, and we can, yeah, we we do it by exploiting other people's land. Our ecological footprint on the planet is immense in the industrialized world. So we, it's easy to live with the illusion as long as we think somehow the economy is disconnected with what what's happening in the environment. Now, I like the use of the word, of the thought exercise of an alien coming from outer space for another reason. That is, if you, the one time that you see humanity acting all together is when an invader comes from outer space, starts killing human beings, right? Next thing you know, the president of the U.S. is calling the guy in Russia and China because our, we're under attack from a single, as a single species. And somehow we have to marshal that understanding that we belong to a single species and that we've got to act together in the interest of our species. And right now, when you look at international negotiations at, at Copenhagen or in Rio uh, later in June, every, it's going to be every country for itself, you know, looking out for their interests. We won't have that sense. Hey, listen, guys, we're all one species and we're in trouble. The unit of survival through the next uh, many decades is going to be the local community. That is going to be, uh, where people are going to have to begin to, to operate together. And I think if you look at what happened in, uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, it was, there is an, an ultimate expression of the American idea of freedom and individuality. Every person out for themselves. I mean, people were killing each other in this time of unbelievable crisis. Then you look at, at Japan after 311. And this massive earthquake, and I was in Sendai, which was the epicenter of the earthquake, the largest earthquake in living memory. As the, when the earthquake hit, electricity went out. Thousands, Sendai is about the size of Vancouver. Thousands of people rushed out of their offices to the train station because they wanted to go home. Of course, there were no trains, no telephone, no computers. So they sat there. This is in the middle of winter. It was snowing and night fell. Lots of them decided to walk many kilometers home. But there were thousands left there. Night fell, it got cold. Nobody smashed a window to get blankets, to get clothing, to get food. They just sat there and waited. Now that kind of sense of community and the way you respond is so radically different. So I'm sure as we begin to see ecological collapse, and it will come through water, food, energy, of course, then you'll see many different expressions. In America, I fear... It's going to be, you know, take to the hills with guns and every person for himself. I hope Canada, with a much stronger sense of social cohesion and responsibility, would take a different path. But I I think the transition town movement is a very exciting movement. The idea of making communities as self-sufficient as possible. Localism is where the real action and change is going to be.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestofleft.com.
5: In the 1970s, researchers predicted that human overuse of planetary resources would surface at the beginning of the 21st century. Almost on cue, food prices skyrocketed, peak oil got closer, and pollution destabilized the climate. In 2008, financial collapse erased a trillion dollars of wealth, and the U.S. lost over 8 million jobs. Three years later, there were 44 million people on food stamps and five job seekers for every available position. Meanwhile, the richest 5% of the population had managed to grab a record 65% of the country's wealth. Wall Street and big companies were thriving, but poverty, anger, and social discontent were rising. The official discourse allows for just one way of solving these problems. Expand production. Rev up the engine and hope the jobs will trickle down. But no realistic estimates of growth are high enough to re-employ the 25 million people who are out of work or can only find part-time jobs. And the indiscriminate growth we'd get would intensify ecological overshoot, which in turn creates more financial instability. We can't just trade one problem off for another. We need to reduce ecological impact and create jobs. How do we do that? We absolutely have to get off fossil fuels, and innovation and technology are essential. But a common suggestion, technologically driven green growth, is only a partial solution, because growth itself degrades planetary resources. We also have to challenge our devotion to endless growth by building a new economic model and way of living. We need a plenitude economy. Its central insight is that changing how we spend our time is the key to reducing environmental impact, creating more jobs, and giving us all a better life. Americans could use a break. Since the 1970s, working hours have risen by about 200 hours a year. That extra work creates stress and impairs family life. Long hours also boost carbon emissions. So let's reduce work time. Rather than hiring four workers for full-time schedules, an employer takes five, each working 80%, or a four-day work week. Yes, we'll need to address the cost of benefits, but that's solvable. Some years ago, the Netherlands government did this for all its new employees. Eventually, the whole Dutch financial sector went to 80%. A fairer distribution of work makes the income distribution fairer, too, because too little work is a major cause of poverty. Giving people more time off is also at the heart of the trend to DIY or do-it-yourself. People are growing vegetables, beekeeping, canning, and brewing beer. They're building low-cost eco-friendly housing, generating energy, sewing clothing, and even making manufactured items with desktop-sized computer-controlled machines. DIY is savvy economics because 21st century technologies have raised the productivity of small-scale production. It allows people to live better with less money, exercise their creativity, and even start businesses as they develop skills and expertise in new eco-intelligent ways of producing. And when people work less, they tend to consume less. The planet gets some time off too. Planet practitioners are also finding security by linking up with each other. There's a wave of social innovation for sharing, bartering, informal and neighborhood exchange, reuse and resale. The sustainability movement motivated it, the Internet facilitated it, and the economic downturn mainstreamed it as cash got scarce and time got more abundant. People are having fun and saving money with clothing and soup swaps, car and ride sharing, couch surfing, and tool libraries. They're building social capital as an alternative to the borrow-and-spend consumer culture. So there's the new model, a plenitude economy that gives people more time away from work, Expanded opportunities for low-impact economic activity and a commitment to social connection and community. It's a way to reclaim a human scale to our economy, take responsibility for our lifestyles, and treat one another and the planet with the respect we all deserve.
12: I'm Gretchen from Minnesota, and I wanted to call in about something that I believe has made me a better person, a more consistent liberal, and has the welcome side effect of improving my well-being. Several highly controversial studies in neuroscience have argued that certain decisions or biological responses to internal and external events occur in the brain before conscious decision-making and the initiation of a behavioral response, say, moving your arm. Of course, there's a long history within science and philosophy which considers causal determinism and its implications, but more and more I find that it is difficult to support the compatibilist view that neuroscience, psychology, and genomics leave much room for the sort of free will that would justify holding people morally responsible for these preconscious decisions made at the deepest level, which constrain and determine our behavior. Daniel Wagner draws on this research in The Illusion of Conscious will, and another introduction which may interest listeners is Sam Harris's book Free Will. Consider the example of two people who commit the same violent crime and are put behind bars. One person is later diagnosed with a brain tumor, causing his aggression and violent outburst. The tumor is removed and he's declared psychologically stable and back to his quote unquote normal self. The other person committed the same crime, but his brain responded under stress to his social and economic circumstances. What's the morally relevant difference? Each person's response is prescripted by their past experiences in biology, but we treat one with contempt and the other as a victim of their biology. In the U.S., we imprison people for three reasons. To deter crime, to protect our society from harm, and, unfortunately, to seek retribution. I propose we strike the latter from our justice system and focus on the roles of social constraint, collective moral responsibility, and psychological rehabilitation. But then I will go even further and argue that the illusion of free will compels us to become more compassionate, even towards the archetypal other. It is also helpful in recognizing the power of unconscious bias towards racial differences, gender, and it is a helpful check against our cultural disdain towards those in poverty. And to come to terms with the illusion of free will is oddly liberating. Thanks for all you do.
8: Hey, Jay, it's Anthony from Illinois. I just got done listening to episode 947 about the uh, progressive divide over Black Lives Matter and kind of the direct targeting of, you know, every white progressive as well as, you know, Bernie Sanders and other presidential candidates. And I think one area that I don't think people really touch on or really think about is this kind of separate divide where whites in the North, think that racism is completely reserved as a means of something that is uniquely inherent to the South. As one who grew up in Illinois and Georgia, I've seen plenty of open and active racist rhetoric in both areas. But I also think that while we see a lot of, you know, influences such as the KKK and things like that being directed primarily in the South, We don't really ever talk about the racism of gentrification of schools gentrification of economics or you know even the fact that a lot of these police killings don't just occur in the south you know these are things that happen across the united states that show that racism is an american problem not a southern problem not a northern problem another area where i think needs to be addressed is that for a lot of whites i think That we see a refusal to engage with discussions of racism simply because we only think of racism as racial slurs using the N word and things like that. However, you know, in discussions that I've had with friends or family about, you know, rhetoric such as the word thug or only being concerned about safety when it's in regards to the urban ghetto or um, African Americans or persons of color moving into neighborhoods, moving into school districts. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we see so much racial hostility and even refusal to acknowledge racism, because we don't like to think of ourselves as racist because we aren't using racial slurs. We're simply using dog whistle politics terms in order to get our messages across. I would like to thank you for all the work that you do with putting together this show, and I look forward to continuing to listen in the future.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, I was going to write and record an activism segment to go with today's episode. But I realized as I started writing that I was really just going to be repeating a lot of what was already being said. So instead, I'm just going to casually recommend a couple of further reading sources. The first is the book Plenitude by author Juliet Score. That's S C H O R. She was the voice you heard in the last clip before the voicemails. She's been focusing on the issue of Americans overworking and overspending for decades now, and she sort of culminated her work into a vision for a future economy and culture that you heard her describe in that segment called Plenitude. She is also active with the organization The Next System Project at thenextsystem.org, which we've also featured previously on the show. And so in keeping with the philosophy of plenitude, I highly recommend that you ride your bike to your local library and pick up a copy as I did. But if you want to go the audiobook route and your library doesn't have a copy of the audiobook, it is available at Audible. So you can go to audiblepodcast.com slash best. And if you want sign up there. You can get it for free. Secondly, I also recommend the blog with the funny name, Mr. Money Mustache. It's written to frankly be disguised as a financial advice blog because that's one of the best ways to draw people in, but it's actually a blog about lifestyle design with a focus on happiness. He even interviewed Juliet Score about her book, Plenitude, because of how much their philosophies have in common. And uh, so you know, Julia tends to focus more on changing our behavior patterns based on a pursuit of happiness and a concern for the environment. And financial security is just sort of a lovely side benefit of that. And Mr. Money Mustache tends to focus on changing our behavior patterns based on a pursuit of happiness and financial security with a cleaner environment as a happy side benefit. You know, it's kind of a, hey, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter, no, you got your peanut butter and my chocolate sort of situation, uh, but in the end, you know, there's still two great tastes that taste great together, so it doesn't matter. The point is that understanding how happiness actually works will naturally lead to less needless spending, which means more saving, and less environmental degradation, which makes it a win win win. All the way around. So if you go to MrMoneyMustache.com, you click on the big Start Here button, you'll come to an introductory post containing this paragraph that sort of gives you a sense of what he's all about. He says, The bottom line is this by focusing on happiness itself, you can lead a much better life than those who focus on convenience, luxury, and following the lead of the financially illiterate herd that is the TV ad absorbing middle class of the United States today and most of the other rich countries. Happiness comes from many sources, but none of these sources includes car or purse upgrades. No matter what the herd or the TV set tells you, this is the truth. Far from being a social outcast, this new perspective will make you a hero among your friends. This is not a fringe activity anymore. Millions of people are fixing their lives these days, and the earlier you can accept it, the sooner you will be rich." So as I said, he tends to focus on the financial benefits of focusing on true happiness, but even he says that once you change your life in such a way that you do become more financially secure, one of the benefits is that you will realize that acquiring money past the point required to serve your basic needs is almost irrelevant to your actual level of happiness. So whether you prefer focusing on happiness, health, personal finances, the environment or all of them all at once, I recommend those two sources as great places to start with totally concrete steps that you can take today to start making great improvements in your life. And lastly, my own little story about this. A few years ago, I got my first taste of, you know, what many call seasonal affective disorder while living in Chicago. You know, I mean, it wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't totally debilitating or anything, but I definitely noticed a difference in my mood and energy levels. And that pattern continued for a couple of more winters until this past one. It was about a year ago that I decided to do the Glacier National Park Climate Hike and decided that I should start training for it in the middle of winter. So this past winter, I would bundle up, I'd make sure my phone was fully stocked with podcasts to listen to, so I was even being productive at the same time. And I would head out on these hikes. And so it's about a 30-minute walk from my apartment to the beginning of Rock Creek Park here in D.C. So I would do that short little walk through town, and then I'd get on the trails. And I started with little like three to five-mile hikes and then worked my way up to doing the entire length of, of the park, which ended up being you know a round trip of about 12 miles door to door. So, you know, I was obviously getting good exercise. I was giving myself a reason to go outside, even though the weather wasn't always, you know, amazing and bright and sunny. I was getting to enjoy a little bit of nature during this dark time of the season. And this activity cost me exactly zero dollars every time I did it, except for, you know, the food required to power my muscles. So I knew that I was enjoying my walks and making good use of my time, but it was my girlfriend, Amanda, who noticed first how much happier I was during the winter than I had been during the previous two winters. And so just like that, what had felt like seasonal affective disorder had been totally neutralized. And there it was, this one habit I formed that contained all of these principles, health, happiness, frugality, and low to no impact on the environment, all in perfect alignment with each other. So it really is not as hard as it may sound. Uh, And with that a quick reminder that next week the show will be on hiatus while Amanda and I go to Glacier Park to hike in the woods for a week. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the park is still on fire, and uh, but I'm also sure that we're going to find some place to hike even if we have to change our originally planned route. But thanks again to everyone who donated to my Climate Hike Fund. If you want to make a donation now, it is definitely not too late. You can go to bestoftheleft.com, click through on the giant Climate Hike banner at the top, and that'll take you to the donation page. If all goes as planned, there will be rerun episodes posting next week to keep you entertained, or if you don't want to listen to a rerun and you have an hour to spare, then I recommend watching the relatively short documentary, White Like Me, featuring anti-racist writer and activist Tim Wise. I was just alerted by listener Matt that it is available online for free at Top Documentary Films. So the movie itself is at topdocumentaryfilms.com slash White, hyphen, like, hyphen, me. I thought it would be a particularly fitting refresher on the dynamics of race in America for anyone who needs it, given the recent kerfuffle, and it's hard to beat free. So, go check that out. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode...